0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Inside Julia's Kitchen is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Employee-owned Bob's Red Mill offers organic, gluten-free, stone-ground products. Visit bobsredmill.com today.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
1: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Hunter Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Food & Wine. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Hunter about the future of food magazines, the latest of food and wine, and we'll hear Hunter's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. In the first part of Inside Julia's Kitchen, we launched the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, we're returning to Julia's passion for professional food writing, with the second part in our series on the state of food magazines. Back in episode 18, we talked to former Bon Appetit editor-in-chief Barbara Fairchild and got her insights. Now, while Barbara didn't come out and say, print is dead, she certainly said, it ain't the future. Now, as we've discussed, Julia took professional food writing very seriously. It really mattered to her, and it still matters to people like Barbara Fairchild, who carried the torch after Julia, and to our guest today, Hunter Lewis. Julia, through her support of organizations, like the International Association of Culinary Professionals, also known as IACP, championed food writing as a career of worth. But as Barbara detailed, print's been taking a beating in the digital age. And while many venerable titles have soldiered on in the last 12 months, we've also lost some very good ones. Rest in peace, Lucky Beach. Someone who knows a thing or two about the hard knocks of writing and editing for major food publications is Hunter Lewis. Trained as a journalist, Hunter has worked at almost every major food print publication from his start at Savoir, to Bon Appetit, to Southern Living, then as Editor-in-Chief at Cooking Light, and now in his role as Editor-in-Chief at Food and Wine. In many ways, he's followed a career path, like Barbara's, that Julia envisioned and expected to endure. It would be an understatement to say that hunters witnessed dramatic changes in the media landscape and the food world during his tenure. He's actually one of the people closest to the precipice of print butting heads with the modern digital age. And for that reason, we're delighted to have him join us to continue our investigation into the future of print media, as well as to talk about food and wine on its 40th anniversary. To celebrate the 40th, the folks of Food & Wine put together the 40 best-ever recipes from Food & Wine, which even includes one of Julia's, ham, steaks, and Madeira sauce. Welcome to the podcast, Hunter. It's great you could be here. So, so much has happened in food media in just the last year. I'm curious, how do you characterize or describe the current state of print publishing in the food world?
3: well i i would argue that so much has happened in the, even in the past month um, you know the way i characterize it is that change is constant and change is uh it, it's the only thing that that remains true and if you're not nimble if you're not willing to change and turn on a dime then this is probably not the business for you
1: and is that the kind of editorial approach at, at Food & Wine now is about being nimble and adapting?
3: Well, I think to me that's the approach in corporate media. You know, if if you are attached to a company that is in the magazine media business today, um, what your goals and priorities were a year ago are going to be different than what they are now. And so, you know, it's, it's riding the wave but acknowledging the ocean. And understanding the industry you're in, um, while also tending to the business at hand with your brand.
1: And within that ocean, w- where is print, or how are media v- brands looking at print?
3: Well, I mean, I think if you if you looked at the landscape, if you looked at the ocean over the past couple of years, you're looking at consolidation. You know, which is no different than what's happening in corporate America elsewhere. But as companies are acquiring new titles, um, growing scale, thinking about audience across the board uh, for advertisers, but also your your full-on digital audience. You know, the the game is how do you keep up digitally with the Googles and the Facebooks of the world? Um, And then when it comes to print, making sure that you're serving... Your loyal audience, you're thinking about your circulation. Um, and whereas the game used to be as an editor between Cirque and Newsstand, really take care of that circulation, take care of that loyal audience, make sure you're serving them what they've come to expect, make sure that uh, there's an element of surprise and delight, especially with a forward thinking title like Food and Wine. And then as you're doing that and maintaining your core, which is print, uh, be damn sure that you're integrated with your digital team and that for your biggest initiatives of the year, you're going big across every platform.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you, with, with with that kind of – and Bar- as I said in the intro, Barbara Fairchild talked about that too, about sort of having to serve many different – audiences receiving the content in different ways and wanting slightly different things, and then there's some overlap. How, how within a media conglomerate are they evaluating what is success? Like you talked about how much change there is. Is that also a changing metric all the time?
3: Well, certainly. I mean, I think it's easier to measure it across digital. You've got numbers month over month and year over year. You've got numbers from Facebook and Instagram. You know what your traffic is on your site. Um, and those are all measurable. You know, I think with print, certainly you can measure circulation, you can measure your advertising dollars, um, but there's still some of that unquantifiable magic. Um, You know, and some of that could be through industry awards and what your peers are saying about you too. But Mm -hmm. I think the most important thing is that no matter what brand you are, you've got to be in sync across every platform. So while your audience in print might be different than your audience on Instagram, which might be different from your audience for your newsletters, the brand has to be the brand across all platforms. Now, you might be speaking to each audience slightly different, um, slightly differently depending on the median age or the median household income or how people might use that platform. But the voice needs to be consistent. The content needs to be consistent, and the mission needs to be consistent across all platforms. Uh, Among our team, we don't, we don't talk about print um, in terms of print dying. We don't talk about print in terms of, like, oh, what's it going to be in the next several years? Um, you know, we're focusing over the next year on what our editorial calendar is, what's happening in our food culture, what's happening in our drink culture, and how do we make sure we reflect that through the editorial so and more has changed in the past the year, I would argue, than probably in the past ten years when it comes to to our food culture, just like our our culture at large.
1: And and so that was one of the things I was going to ask you: Does print still matter? I mean, you're you're obviously including it in the equation, and is that what you're saying? You're you're tackling it as a more short term thing to do the best by your readers and and as you can across all forms.
3: Well, you know, you're you're asking. And editor in chief of a uh of a, a print centric brand with a growing digital audience. Of, of course I'm gonna say print still matters. Um I'm biased. But here's the thing. You know, we are so saturated on a daily basis at work and at home with our phones and, and with our computer screens. Um and the way that we digest stories and images and video on the phone is different than the way that we digest uh, the storytelling, and the printer product. You know, the, printer, the print edition drives way more engagement uh, than something that's fleeting on the screen of our phone. And so when we're thinking about our storytelling, we're thinking about blending beautiful images and essays and recipes, there's still no other medium like print that can deliver a great food story like the printed product of Food & Wine.
1: Well, as someone who really likes print magazines, and especially I think when you get into things that are your specific interest area um, as an individual, like what you like to do when you have time to have a cup of coffee and, or before you go to bed or on a break, it's reassuring to me to hear that it sounds like print as a, a, dig, as a medium of publishing is still valued and still a central point of, of food and wine despite all this change in the last few years.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely the flagship. It's the flagship platform.
1: And and do you think it's the flagship because of what we just talked about, because it creates a level of engagement that you're not getting in other kinds of digital media, for instance?
3: Well, certainly. I mean, I think if you look at the 40-year history of the brand, it emerged out of print with, with print really being the lead platform. Now, of course, over the past 15 years, all of these other platforms have become a part of the brand, um, but it's not going away anytime soon, and, and by that I mean the print product. If, if you think about the way that people engage with it, how much they care about it, um, both from the readers that are emailing, emailing me directly, um, but also the readers we hear through uh, while we're on the road or in focus groups, You know, they crave that print product. Uh, and, and they crave that storytelling. While it's no secret that um, the advertising game continues to change and, and overall print is struggling, the dollars are still there. And when it comes to our corporate parent Meredith taking over, the mandate is that we grow year over year when it comes to print advertising. And I think we're going to see some bigger wins in 2019, with our new sales team led by tom a publisher so there's no retreat in print
1: well that was also you answered a little bit of what i was asking about so ad pages is still um a strong metric and a strong metric for success at least for the print side of food food and wine or any other publication like it for sure and is that – is ironically the digital age that the, the feedback mes- mechanism, the easier feedback mechanism, at least for consumers um, – I don't know if it's easier on the editorial side to get it. But does that actually help you, do you think, improve the print thing because you're able to hear more quickly, more efficiently what, how people are responding to what you're producing?
3: Sure. I think the way that we produce a print product now is different than the way we would do it in the past. You know, there's there's always what I call the, the dark editorial arts, which is really your gut level instinct about what's new and next and how you're leading the way for your consumer. You know, I, I talk about it with food and wine. It's important to be a step ahead of the consumer to help usher them into this new era. But with that now, we can add SEO analysis. We can look at what recipes are really popping we could look at Google Analytics and, and we know that, say, something like pho, the Amazing Vietnamese Soup, is trending in January. Okay, well, if more people are eating that in January than they are in June, um, that could give us a leg up in selecting what a cover might be. But it can't all be analytics or majority analytics. Uh, and nowadays, it can't all be just gut instinct. You know, we have more tools tools at our disposal uh, that we can use to think about what a a cover image might be, what a headline might be, or what what, what your editorial calendar might look like.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of like informed alchemy, what used to be a lot more stabbing in the dark or a lot more the the guru of the editors is now reflected. So if an editor is advocating that we must cover something or write about something in a certain way, you have the analytics that show you whether people were really paying attention to that or not, but it can't tell you what to do next.
3: I like that. I'm going to use informed alchemy.
1: (laughs) You can have it. You can have it as long as long as you just give me credit and food of mind for where it comes from, <laughs> so in that regard, one of the questions I wanted to know is you 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 I think many listeners who maybe don't follow publishing as closely and just like the content you know you you've been at many different magazines, you've been in a magazine that that's um, you've gone through a lot of change and in a very short period of time. And um, which I'm sure you don't want to talk about on the on this podcast at length. But I was curious, what as someone who is still, as you said, at at, at a, a a major venerable brand that is grounded in print, confronting the digital age, what are the things that are keeping you up at night? Like, are is it fearsome competitors? Is it actually stuff internally? Is it the state of the planet?
3: You know, I mean, I think this, my focus right now this is a few weeks after the news came out that cooking light was folding into eating well. Um, and I've run two brands for the past year. Um, so I think what's kept me up over the past couple of weeks is thinking about um, some of my fellow editors on cooking light and um, what their next steps might be, you know? And so thinking about their careers, thinking about, is there anything we could have done differently with cooking light to help tend to the business? Now, you the decision um, to shut down the the print product of Cooking Light is, if you look at the history of it, it dates back to where the revenue was going and some of the corporate decisions made under Time Inc. So, you know, what has kept me up at night, I think, is no longer keeping me up at night. and I don't know what else we could have done um, because it was a corporate decision. And so now the primary focus is on what can we do with food and wine um, and how can we continue to come together as a team that operates in both new york and birmingham uh, because we've got our digital team and some of our key editors in new york and then we've got uh, key editors and our production team and our test kitchens here in birmingham you know and i think 2019 is going to be a big big year for us as we lay the foundation with this new team in 2018, you know, we're just starting to really click. And I think the product really reflects that. Uh, I think our storytelling is getting sharper. We're coming up with a common palette and a common vernacular and starting to create stories that will be benchmarks for us in the years to come.
1: Well, I like that you have people first and foremost in your mind, and I think that's a great reminder that when any – um, business or business entity changes dramatically. It's ultimately people that that are affected affected by it, and it's ultimately people that make any one beloved publication work. So I appreciate you you raising that.
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I was lucky enough to have dinner with Ruth Reichel a couple weeks ago while we were both in Nashville, and we talked a lot about uh, the shuttering of Gourmet and. And the big um, punch that that was, and I remember I was sitting in the test kitchen at Sever um, in the middle of the day, and I, we got word that twenty blocks up the street that Gourmet was folding, you know, and then soon enough, the story came out that Bonap was moving east from l a to New York City. Um, you know, and any time there's a title that shutters. Uh, or big moves at, up at the top of the masthead, it's a game of dominoes. And um, I was actually a beneficiary of Bon Appetit's move East. Um, that's when Adam Rappaport, who became the IC, he came calling, and I became food editor at Bon App. Um, you know, and so I don't like the fact that it was at the expense of gourmet, um, but in my 10 years and. Magazine media, you know, I, I've been a part of this game of dominoes.
1: Yes, no, I remember those earth earthquake moments, and they they seem to have suddenly since that time they they were coming a little bit faster and more furious. I wanted to go back to what you were saying about Cooking Light and, and how it's changed. I mean, I felt like when I heard that news, I didn't think about it because, you know, certainly Cooking Light was a publication. At one time, it had a very big circulation, but that it actually, like you said, it was reflective of the moment in time and sort of food and food has moved a little bit well, I'd say actually a lot more into health and wellness as a center than dieting. And to me, cooking light always reflected, you know, as Julia used to talk about the food police and anti-butter and anti-fat, it kind of came, came out of that um, thinking, and that thinking is kind of radically evolved. And I was thinking, do you, do you feel similarly that it's kind of the change and the pace of change that you talked about, it, it's both a corporate decision, but it's also part of that cultural reflection?
3: Well, I think if anybody was paying attention to the editorial over the past 10 years, we were totally of the times and just a little bit ahead of the time. Now, the brand name, Cooking Light, didn't do us any favors, um, especially when when it came time for the company to decide which title to bet on. Um, Certainly, Eating Well is a more modern-sounding title. But if you look at our editorial if you look at the Beard Awards one if you look at the sharpness of the, of the content, I think we absolutely reflected the times and the shift towards well-being and away from low-fat and light. You know, when Cooking Light launched out of Southern Living 31 years ago, it was a Snackwells era. It was the low-fat craze, and, you know, fat was public health enemy number one. And I think, you know, look, I'm biased, but I think... The editors of the brand did a great job over time of shifting consumer focus away from low-fat to a more balanced way of eating.
1: Fair enough. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Hunter more specifically about – the future and exciting things of food and wine, and also get a little bit more of his perspective on food writing in what we've already talked about, the very complex and fast-changing media landscape today. We'll be right back. If you don't yet have Julia's last cookbook, Julia's kitchen wisdom, it's a treasure trove of our best advice. There's even a specific baking chapter full of nifty tips. For example, there's guidance on how you can make traditional French baguettes at home. Julia was consumed with conquering this, and while it's probably not the best place to start for first-time bakers, you're up for the challenge Julia guides you through. Another baking tip Julia shares on bread making is, if you've overworked traditional wheat flour dough, and it won't easily roll, take a 10-minute break. That should allow the gluten to relax and you can get back to rolling. You know who else offers baking tips? Bob's Red Mill. You can find all kinds of useful ideas on the bobsredmill.com blog. Search flowers, a primer, to find this blog post, which offers detailed guidance on how to pick the right flour for whatever you're baking. And for more experienced bakers, ideas on how to up your game. Visit bobsredmill.com today, Use the discount code Julia's Kitchen Pod, all one word, all caps, for valuable savings on any of the more than 50 types of flowers and meals they sell. Welcome back. We're talking with Food and Wines editor in chief, Hunter Lewis. All right, Hunter, let's talk more about food and wine on its 40th anniversary, a slightly more upbeat topic than than the, <laughs> the state of media right now. So I noticed that, and we've talked about this already a little bit, that food and wine, when you look at it or the nomenclature, it, it used to kind of always say food and wine magazine, and now it says food and wine. And I think I wanted to delve a little bit more into that significance, particularly in terms of the editorial approach. And maybe we've been talking very mechanically, but thinking more about the editorial approach in terms of the actual content. So do you think that's a fair way to look at it, that you're editorially managing as an overall brand rather than a quote-unquote
3: magazine? Absolutely. You know, I think you have to think about the brand holistically across all platforms and all channels. Um, And that even extends to things like licensing. Um, You've got to be thinking about how the brand looks and feels and sounds across every platform.
1: And so how is that translating into what you guys are doing in terms of either stories or sections or what, what type of content?
3: Y- y- well, I think if you look wine. at 2018 and what we've produced over the past year, this is the 40th anniversary of Food and & Wine. And we launched as an insert in Playboy in 1978. And in those 40 years, not only has food and wine changed, uh, but cuisine in America has really just exploded, um, and it's been on a rocket ship. And as we looked across the bow for this year, we wanted to celebrate the 40th anniversary, to think about what food and wine has meant as a part of this rise in American cuisine. Now, we didn't start it, but we've helped reflect it for 40 years. So it's about honoring the past and honoring the legacy of food and wine, while also looking forward. Um, as our culture is changing so quickly, you know, I think the way that we might have covered things a couple years ago is much different than the way we cover it now. Not because I'm at the helm, but because culture in America has changed so much, uh, and and the food culture and the restaurant culture has changed so much, you know, and and the people that we are covering now and we'll be covering in 2019 are different than the folks we would have covered a couple of years ago. Um, mm. You know, I think when I took over that food and wine a year ago, there was already the shift away from celebrity chefs. Um, and I think now with some of these bad actors and what's going on with the me too movement, you've got to be more careful about the folks that you're covering and how you vet. Um, and while you're doing that, also making a conscious decision um, to focus on new voices, more diverse voices, both in the people you're, um, you're telling stories about but also in the bylines that are reporting the stories.
1: And I was going to ask, is this shift that you're talking about away from celebrity chefs, is it is it to new voices and maybe chefs who are not necessarily celebrities or at least chefs who are not cultivating celebrity?
3: Well, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, some of it is the fact that You know, some of these chefs have gotten so much coverage over over so long that maybe there's not a new story to tell. Um, And then you you also want to invest in some of this new talent and some of these new stories. You know, in which we do really well with Best New Chefs. You know, this year we celebrated the 30th anniversary of Best New Chefs. Um, It was one of the most fun classes that we've ever featured, and. We commissioned a short documentary to talk about the history of the franchise and how that marries with the history of the rise of cuisine in America. Um, and so if you look at this class, you know, these are the future leaders. Uh, these are the people shaping cuisine over the next 10, 20 years. Um, and that class looks different and they sound different um, than a class maybe 10, 20 years ago. And so that's a good example of, um, of what's happening in cuisine now. Um, and who the leaders are, and who Food & Wine will choose to focus on.
1: Well, that's reassuring. And I wanted to go back to something that you said that I did not know, that it started as an insert in Playboy, which seems very ironic. But I assume that also has something to do with it. Food & Wine being a unique publication with its history with American Express. And do you think now that you're at maybe part of a you know, longstanding traditional uh, media company and publishing company, is that changing it? Or you think the brand DNA of food and wine is sort of strong enough that that's more the focus and it doesn't matter that much who who owns it and directs the purse strings?
3: Well, it shouldn't matter to the reader. Um, and, and that's part of our job is making sure that nothing that's happening within the corporate organization is being reflected on the pages for the audience because they don't care. They want killer recipes. They want great storytelling, beautiful imagery. They want to be in the know. Um, you know, They want to use what they're learning on the platforms of food and wine as cultural currency with their friends and family. You know, what restaurant to go eat at it, how to be the best host at the dinner party, how to be the best guest at the dinner party, what bottle of wine to bring. Um, so all of that matters more than what's happening Within the office of, of Food & Wine or Meredith
1: so I noticed Hunter that you trained as formally as a journalist and, and not specifically a food journalist, and then you rose up by starting work in magazine test kitchens and I know you you mentioned it before and I, I've not seen it I'd like to see it, but I've heard a lot about uh, the the state of the art test kitchen in Birmingham that now is, is part of Food & Wine as well. And so I thought it would be helpful for readers to hear a little bit of what role does a test kitchen play in food publishing in general and how are you guys now at Food & Wine leveraging it today?
3: Well, I think as as a cook and as a journalist, um, the test kitchen is where all the action is. You know, I mean, it, it's a visceral process where – you can smell what's cooking. You can shape what the pages of the magazine will look like and how you can inform the storytelling by what is simmering on a stove. You know, so we, we engineer and develop recipes or we'll commission recipes from chefs and we'll workshop them in the test kitchen. And that informs how you're going to shape them and, and how you're going to use them to help tell a story. So, if we've got a story coming out soon about um, uh, beautiful holiday birds, you know, we're thinking about the shape, we're thinking about the flavors, thinking about the variety, we're thinking about how we're going to photograph them and how they might carry a full-page image, um, maybe even what of those birds will be on the cover. And so, all of that starts in the test kitchen. And as we do that, we start thinking about, you know what, that would actually make a great video. We want to show people how to flambe a roasted duck um, and how to do it safely. So let's shoot a video. Let's shoot something that we can cut down for social media, maybe as an Instagram story. Uh, And a lot of that conversation happens uh, from the get-go in the test kitchen.
1: So in some ways, it's kind of like a beating heart of the publication.
3: The beating heart, it's, um, you know, it's a laboratory, it's an incubator of ideas, uh, and it's a really collaborative process. You know, and also as somebody who identifies as a glorified home cook, um, it's where you get to go and geek out over a technique if you're thinking about, you know, not just how to flambe that duck, but how do you break it down tableside in an elegant way? Um, So you can look like the expert host that you are.
1: Yeah, no, I like that imagery, too, of that the the test kitchen represents this really hands-on, visceral, five senses interaction with food, but that that is something that does relate to storytelling. And obviously the best food writers really have a a really strong grasp of that that interplay um, and how— I think oftentimes people think of it as divorced or two separate things, or there's recipes and there's writing. But it 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 it, it sounds like philosophically for you and your team, it, it it's all a whole.
3: Well, certainly that's my perspective and where I come from. You know, I was a restaurant cook for several years, um, and it's something that my experiences working in restaurants, like Jonathan Waxman's restaurant or Budo in New York City, you know, I use that experience um in conscious and unconscious ways probably every day so our team identifies as passionate home cooks um we identify as journalists and as storytellers and it's important to bring the two worlds together what happens in the kitchen um to what happens on the page
1: I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to ask you about your experience with Jonathan Waxman, and mostly specifically in terms of giving people who are interested in getting into food writing guidance, because I read that Jonathan Waxman, and I think you've talked about this too, once described you when you started as being all thumbs in the kitchen. And so given that you obviously started at at the basics, what's your advice to those people who perhaps have more passion than skill when they're starting out, but want a career in food writing?
3: Well, I think ultimately it's what do you want to do? Um, I have dozens of people who email me each year. We'll set up meetings, and they're trying to decide whether or not they want to go to culinary school. Should they go work in restaurants? And my advice to anybody, no matter what you're going to do in life, is go work in a restaurant. Go be on, uh, on a team in a kitchen or in the front of the house and serve others um, and learn what those deadlines are like. Sorry, learn what those deadlines are like. Um, learn what it means to be at the other side of the table uh, because you'll benefit from no matter what. Um, now, for me, translating that into a, a journalism career, I'd already gone to journalism school. And so I'd worked at a newspaper um, and I'd learned how to tell stories in that way. Uh, and, and so the advice I give folks about how to break in is that you need to understand what you want to do. And no matter where you go, no matter what school you apply to or what restaurant you go work for, you have to go work for people that you respect and whose values are, are in line with yours. Um, because no matter what, the whole thing is continuing, Ed. And you have to use every experience, whether you're paid or not, as the next step is done. You know, and what's interesting to me is, back in '04 when I moved to New York City from North Carolina, uh, there was only so many gatekeepers out there when it came to food media. Um, it was just at the advent of the rise of blogs. Mm. Uh, there was no Instagram. Facebook was in a very nascent stage, and the landscape was different. Fast forward to now, you've got many more outlets even as some of the major outlets like Cooking Light or Folding you've got many more food writers you've got better food writing across the board and so there's more competition and so you know the game has changed a lot over the past 10 years that I've been in it
1: yeah i mean certainly market economics argues that more competition you know creates a, a greater product But I guess I was curious, as you said, you changed trained as a journalist, and I think historically, back to the Barbara Fairchild, Julia Child era that I was talking about, that most food writers had some background in being a journalist, or maybe they were an author and had already kind of come up that way. So when you hire now at Food & Wine, do you look for people with journalism experience still, or is that if it's on the page as good writing, it doesn't matter?
3: I think it's a case-by-case basis. You know, if it's somebody that already has some experience under their belt, you look at her work. How capable is she at writing short or long? How good are her ideas? Um, you know, you can, you can go from there. But some kind of journalism background is preferred for sure.
1: Music to my ears at the foundation trying to help people fact check and not rely on whatever they find on the internet to be factual.
3: Yeah, I mean, the truth matters. <laughs> Let's hope it continues,
1: too. Um, so on that note, what, what what's in your crystal ball tell you about what's in store? You were talking about with, with Food & Wine that it, it is right now very much a short-term focus in terms of just getting the, we were talking about informed alchemy right moving forward. But if you had a crystal ball, do you, it, does it only go through 2019 or are you looking for the next 40 years as well?
3: Well, I think uh, forty years might too, be too far ahead. Um, I'm going to stay on the surfboard and, and ride this wave for a while. <laughs> but I think what you'll see in tangible ways over the next couple years are new partnerships between food and wine uh, and the trades, the winemakers, the restaurateurs, the hoteliers. Uh, food and wine's always operated in this sort of liminal zone between what I call the civilian cooks and consumers and the pros, you know, the chefs that we cover. And if you come to a food and wine event like the food and wine classic in Aspen, it's an amazing community. Um, And we serve both the civilians, and we're going to be serving even more of the pros in the coming years. And so you'll see this through new products in our newsletters, new services at events, potentially new events down the road that are aimed at more professional programming. And so you'll see more of that in the coming years because it's not enough to just award a Best New Chef an accolade. How can you help them and and arm them with tangible tools um, and a mentor, maybe somebody who was a Best New Chef 10 years ago, to help them grow their career? You know, and how do we as a brand tap into that community of 323 former Best New Chefs in a way where we're serving that community, we're growing our brand, uh, and we're evolving with the times? And so that's one of the changes you'll see over the, the coming years.
1: Well, that's exciting. That that definitely aligns with the foundation's focus, which is ours is very much in, in Continuing Joy's legacy, is that exact intersection between um, the public who are interested in food and cooking, or want to be interested in food and cooking, and the professional world, and how each can learn from each other and interact with each other. That's one of our our primary focuses. So that's fantastic to to hear that it it's shared, and obviously it has been shared from the long history of of the food and wine classic in Aspen. All right. After the break, Hunter is going to share his Julia moment. We'll be right back.
2: Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter.
1: When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't
0: have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see
1: From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. Okay, Hunter, what's your Julia Moment?
3: My Julia Moment, okay, I don't have an exact date or time, but I was definitely sitting on the couch uh, in my Atlanta home as a kid. And this was long before... We moved to North Carolina. Uh, and I'm sitting on the couch and I'm watching Julia and Jacques uh, on a Sunday morning. And I just remember the banter uh, and the playful ribbing. And this is at a time when I didn't know anything about cooking, um, but shows like theirs, I think, really sparked a passion. Um, You know, and then if you fast forward that to my time in New York, um, on my desk right now, I'm looking at a publication from 1979, and it's called Design Quarterly, and it was this design group that um, went into Julia's kitchen and detailed it in a way that I've never seen before. From mm-hmm. her tools to how she labeled everything, her storage, how Paul set up the butler's pantry to make cocktails and pour wine. Um, and so I've got that in front of me. And it's not only just a really cool document, but it actually informs some of the ways that we've told kitchen stories in the past at other brands. And then my newest Julia moment is actually a Paul moment. Um The November issue of Food & Wine, which is just about to hit newsstands, has the lost cocktails of Paul Child. As you know, he was uh, very into cocktail culture, very ahead of his time. And one of our friends and a journalist out of Atlanta, Carolyn O'Neill, came across these awesome index cards with cocktail recipes handwritten by Paul Child. And so you'll see that story with three recipes in the November 2018 issue of Food and
1: Wine. Well, and yeah, we're all excited to see that. And thanks to Carolyn, she really rescued what could have been, um, in many cases, lost to history. And that was a definite—I think certainly people who knew Paul and Julia knew about Paul's kind of excitement for that. But it certainly it wasn't really ever the focus of Julia's work. So um, we're grateful to Food and Wine to— for your decision to to share that and and bring back um particularly Paul's elaborate cocktails. And actually that design quarterly I do know that issue and it it's quite in depth and it's actually inspired there's a, at least one if not two books out now on kitchen design where they talk about Julia's kitchen as a kind of central element, I can't remember, one might be mostly about her kitchen, and then another one is about kitchens in general, and then it leverages that. So other people have discovered that, you know, quarterly, which was for people in basically the design trade as a a source and this elaborate documentation and and, and analysis, right, of her kitchen. It's a really fascinating kind of cerebral look at, at a cook's kitchen.
3: It's a good advertisement for pegboard, too.
1: Indeed, indeed. And that, you know, I always make sure to credit Paul, because as much as that's associated with Julia, I'm pretty certain it was Paul's idea and invention that then certainly um, was incredibly influential. Well, Hunter, we really appreciate having you on. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: My pleasure. It was an honor. Thank you, Todd.
1: And thanks to all of you for listening. So tell us, what's your favorite go-to recipe from food and wine? Send us an email or even a voice memo. to Contact at juliachildfoundation.org. You can follow us on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook, at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Shulkin T-S-C-H-U-L-K-I-N. Food and Wine is available at a magazine stand near you and online at foodandwine.com. You can follow Hunter on social media. His handle is at NotesFromACook on Instagram and Twitter, and Food & Wine's handle is at Food & Wine, and they're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And the 40th anniversary issue we talked about, that was published in September, and you can find more, including the 40 best-ever recipes from Food & Wine, It's still on foodandwine.com. And as Hunter mentioned, the upcoming November issue features an article with The Lost Cocktails of Paul Child. And in just 30 days, the fourth annual Julia Child Award will be presented to chef duo Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Feniger, Border Grill and Two Hot Tamales fame at the Food History Weekend Gala, the National Museum of American History, Washington, D.C. on November 1st. Go to JuliaChildAward.com for links to purchase tickets to this public fundraising event. It's a not-to-be-missed, magical, and delicious evening, celebrating the honorees, good food, and it raises precious funding to preserve American culinary history. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lawrence Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorney. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. And don't forget to subscribe so don't miss upcoming episodes. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon and after on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen.